Chapter 2 Opportunity Presents Itself Where exactly is Whitefish? 1998 arrived, and I had just moved to Nashville not long before, residing with those same two friends that I fled out west with in 1995. While they pursued careers in music, I was still struggling to figure out where I was going with my life. I picked up a job as a zookeeper at the Nashville Zoo, succeeding an internship that lasted for a few months, a relatively seamless next step being that I had a place to live. An end goal looked for something wilder, a national park job, perhaps, but this sufficed in the interim. The job became fun and fulfilling, escorted by the freedom of being on my own. Serving as a zookeeper was not a lifelong ambition, but animals were often more interesting to me than many people. A rowdy zebra named Sharpie was no exception. What an illustrious name for a white stallion with an assortment of odd black markings all over it, by the way. Well done to whoever came up with that name. As fun as the job was while being part of a budding institution, to have a career meant moving the needle a little more to fill the rest of a meaningful work life. I had mixed feelings concerning the idea of animals in captivity while praising the importance that zoos play in conservation, endangered animal breeding, and education. To me, a perfect world comprises no demand for such a thing, with nothing more gratifying than seeing wild animals. We do not live in a perfect world, so we must make compromises. My friend Andy had come back from a vacation in Montana during the summer to visit his relatives and their property. We reviewed pictures, some scenery, some of whitewater adventures, even a picture of a bear in a tree. They were elegant and looked exciting, yet made no deep impression other than reminding me of the first visit to Montana. Finally, there was mention of his uncle's cabin and the property he stayed at. The cabin itself looked grand and home to many modern amenities, though foreign to many others. It resided outside of the ski town of Whitefish, Montana, adjacent to Glacier National Park. Over two hours of driving north of Missoula, where Weiss and I had been before cutting over to Idaho. The conversations led to revelations it stood vacated most of the year. I pondered endlessly about what such a life would be, yet that life was still quite out of reach. By the time 1999 came around, that bubble inside my head felt ready to pop. The self-assigned pressure to figure things out beat rapidly like an adrenalized heart. I needed to figure out my next move. Nashville entranced as a wonderful place, circled by even more beauty, but not for me. The atmosphere reflected far too city-centric a setting with a hefty dose of show-business persona. It was not home. The Internet, in large part, remained a work in progress, and so networking opportunities were sporadic. Opportunities for research were scarce. Not enough information surfaced to make intelligent decisions, assuming I was capable of such, I lacked a small beachfront to make landfall out west. Thinking about the cabin in Montana came up more and more. 
That still was not possible. I did not know the landowner, and surely Andy would not be up for deferring his music aspirations to go hole up in a cabin in the woods for a while. Light conversations went on between us. To my surprise, he seemed very interested in the idea. This arose as a shock to me. Not only did he have his music to stand rooted with, but I did not see him exactly so fond of the outdoors that he would want to live it daily as a lifestyle. Was I overlooking something? The trip out west right after high school included many outdoor adventures, and we seemed to have the time of our lives. We took advantage of Nashville and the surrounding lake for cliff jumping and tiny islands to swim out to. A precedent bloomed into a revelation that a journey west could work. There existed no apprehension that Andy would find a wealth of hobbies to stay enriched by during the wintertime. He was an artist and musician, who would already stay up throughout the night to work on a drawing or mix songs, along with hundreds of other ways to stay busy. Such certain idleness, free of distraction, could serve him well in sharpening his skills in those musical endeavors. We were already great friends and shared an appreciation for weird humor, so there birthed not a doubt that we would have frequent bouts of ridiculous laughter living in a fairly isolated setting. He was, after all, one of the funniest people I had come across. Before ever knowing much of Andy, he had already made a name for himself by shaving his head to look like Burns from The Simpsons in our large high school. He had the lanky frame and towering nose that made the impression work brilliantly. Still better, he interrupted my mock karaokeing of Bust a Move during senior year after prom by shooting through a crowd and then up on stage. Just as soon as he arrived, he had vanished out of sight with the frenzied pace of a professional wrestler inciting the audience. He bore only his tidy red undies to the horror and outrage of many high school girls. Bold move. He had an uncanny ability to recognize shock humor. Immediately after high school, at the age of 18, we visited Toys R Us and noted how expensive Legos had become. One such set on display hosted a disturbing price tag of $75. Space Tech Legos. We stood next to a mom and her prying son, desperately wanting that very same overpriced toy. In fact, our attention to it may have drawn the interest of the boy. The mother remained remarkably calm and patient. The child reminded me of myself at the volcanic age of eight, very much the same unreasonable brat. She spent nearly five minutes lovingly explaining to the boy why he could not have it, and her mannerisms worked to my amazement. Her voice had soothed her son and seemingly soothed me as well. My mother had many of those same moments, and after years of patience, I was proud of the mature man that I had become because of her. No longer a spaz begging for expensive toys, I felt at peace. Abruptly, Andy reached for the toy and said, Hey Brad, let's get this one. The mother's jaw dropped, 
and he bolted down the aisle to escape with a straight face. I tried to keep up with him, desperate to not make a sound or show the disbelief that consumed my soul. My heart raced. I could hear the child behind now pleading frantically for Space Tech Legos. The entire store could. His mother's consolation was no match for Andy's parental sabotage. The incident that unfolded in aisle seven of the Toys R Us in Toledo became one of the biggest shocks I witnessed in my entire life. Of course, he did not purchase the Legos and left the box prominently by the single exit in hopes that the boy's outrage would have an encore. I found the pulse that belonged to a migration out west. We had enough hope and interest to put the wheels in motion. Giving a Crazy Idea Life in June To turn this wish into reality, a few things needed to happen. I needed more money, a better vehicle, to quit our jobs, and we needed a plan. Most notably, we needed permission from his uncle to stay at that cabin. Something I worried a lot more about than Andy. As plans matured and evolved, the permission concern lingered. That simmering detail fixed entirely out of my control. The time came up hastily to let people know my stay in Nashville will soon end. With no expectation for staying in Tennessee as a long-term thing, almost two years had passed by quickly, much longer than expected. Letting the zoo know of the departure felt awkward. Not to say I was overly valuable, but my co-workers and the many personalities of the animals had grown on me. With the uncertainty of whether we could actually live in the cabin of my friend's uncle, telling everyone about the plan proved not a simple thing to do either. There remained a chance that I would never see the plan through. Telling family, friends, and co-workers passed smoothly and void of much backlash. By backlash, I mean folks openly expressing that they thought I was completely nuts, completely off the deep end. They were most likely just being extremely tight-lipped and polite, Canadian style. I was nuts, and the plan was absolutely unorthodox. How can one possibly explain a move like that and not sound like they are hearing voices in an Iowa cornfield? A stark contrast to what normal city folk do in their early 20s. The status quo of prime bachelor years meant parties, promiscuity, drugs, and alcohol. To purposefully go stay in the woods showed an act of randomness so unprecedented by anyone I knew for that age. If that evidence fell short of inciting ridicule, then the poor publicity of cabin living in Montana during the late 1990s surely closed the case. July's Preparation To address the money situation, the last five weeks before departure meant getting rid of the duplex we lived in. Andy chose to move back in with his parents in Toledo to save money and work, but I stayed with my friends Ross, Matt, and Wayne. I finished out the time at the zoo and picked up a second job part-time with a company loading freight and cargo planes at the airport. The work was tough, as we rolled pre-packaged freight weighing up to a ton onto a portable conveyor belt that hoisted the cargo up to the plane. From there, we would push the freight as far back on the plane as possible before securing the load. Repeat that 20 times 
and call it quits for the night. They did not know I intended to stay only a month, and my boss became a little peeved when I eventually told him. But we hugged it out. Not actually. My first time working seven days a week routinely required some pain tolerance, and I found no shortage of exhaustion on the three days that called for working both jobs consecutively. To make an insane move across the country attainable, short-term sacrifice required absolute homage. It helped to know that willful unemployment awaited me on the other side, a small price to pay. Many of the normal concerns over expenditures were already taken care of, leaving only a few remaining to pay mine to. We needed money for food, insurance, gas, and ample cash set aside to withstand unexpected expenses. All else became slightly extra and unnecessary. The next step meant acquiring a better vehicle for the winter and back roads. The Mercury Sable ran reliably, but the situation called for some storage and four-wheel drive. I traded it in for a dark silver 1990 Isuzu Trooper boasting relatively high mileage. The vehicle seemed up to the tasks of cross-country and winter travel with its boxed shape, four-wheel drive, and accessible snow chains. I added some window tint in the back to discourage onlookers should we have to sleep there during our journey out. This would later become known as the Aloha, for its participation in saying so many hellos and goodbyes in such a brief window of time. The name seemed to fit remarkably. Andy was back in Toledo with two weeks before our expected departure to Montana, and he still did not have verbal permission. Knowing how kind and selfless his family is now, it is much easier to understand why he was so nonchalant about it. Yet, that single detail loomed as a game-changer for me back then. The detail kept me up at night. Part of me questioned the reason for his being so lackadaisical towards securing approval. Was this a reflection of wavering reluctance to go? Had I been too pushy? When I heard that his uncle was already discussing with Andy how to open the cabin, there brought a revitalizing sense of relief. Not quite a full-blown permission, but sufficient to keep the plans drifting down the assembly line towards a finished product. Methodical Madness The trip set itself up to be a once-in-a-lifetime moment of almost limitless freedom, a wonderful sense of shedding off the burdensome tuxedo of responsibility, like a molting snake to embrace and succeed at a cabin lifestyle to experience cabin fever, have fun while doing so, and gracelessly teeter the tightrope of not going completely nuts in seclusion, to simplify living and earn the right to be staying on someone else's property. There needed to be more than just relishing the chance of living life in a cabin, though. Guided challenges must lay in the path to making the time all worthwhile and fulfilling. To seek once-in-a-lifetime adventures meant immersing with as much unique Montana fauna as possible. Precautions were to be honored and balanced with the risk of overthinking. Guided efficiency with milestones was a must, or else the time would come and go with no sense of accomplishment. As a kid, summer vacations were great, 
but at some point each year, an idle burnout came from not having enough goals or tasks. Later in high school, I prepared for that and combated that lack of fulfillment by trying to make sure I read books, poked around at some skills, produced some comical movies, composed stories, played baseball, and even sent off on a few memorable adventures. The experience now before me hatched into one long summer vacation, and journaling would be a way of documenting the experience while developing some writing skills to attribute towards story writing. Reading, becoming smarter, getting handier, and finding enrichment with hobbies such as wilderness survival appeared on the menu. A way to take advantage of the flexibility that I did not have during the school year. Once Nashville could only be seen through a rearview mirror, the goals would shift and become refreshed, reborn. The abrupt change demanded a roadmap or composer to help orchestrate the autonomy. With any luck, the essence of the summer vacation could last beyond the cabin stay with opportunities to linger out west somewhere and somehow. Loading up the covered wagon in August. I left Tennessee at the end of August and headed 470 miles north to regroup with Andy in Toledo, where our families lived. I devoted a few days to say those hellos and goodbyes with my mom and dad, along with other loved ones. It was their first chance to square me in the eye and hear about the levels of caution and meticulous planning that would be deployed. There were a few awkward, are you sure about this, scenarios as the family was getting almost used to my ludicrous ideas. Almost. I capitalized on a chance to earn extra money working for my brother-in-law, Kevin, one day. My dad then shuttled me out to the sporting goods store and purchased a GPS to stall the odds of getting lost, which I had a knack for doing. With their sixties fast approaching, saying being lost is all relative to my parents would not have been a comforting send-off, and so those words stayed tucked in the vault. Next up brought forth Michigan to visit Andy's uncle and iron over all the details of the property and cabin. There were many details. He stood noticeably tall, seemed excited by our ambitions, and could not have been more warm and friendly throughout our entire conversation. Both he and his friend had done somewhat the same thing in his younger years, which is how he ended up buying the property. In the 1970s, the property sold for relatively cheap because it was clear-cut and replanted with mostly pines and tamaracks. We discussed ways to help earn our keep in the cabin and then said goodbye. The plan had fully manifested with some masterful space management packing up the Aloha. We were soon on the turnpike. We had a fair idea of how long it would take to get to the cabin, and all the while, we would bed down in the Aloha or tent if feasible. Approximately 1,900 miles in total. Our first real noteworthy stop became Mount Rushmore, a tourist spot veered off the highway with lots of elevation gained. The Aloha, with its four cylinders, seemed to handle fine, but pushed hard with all the weight that we brought with us. That vehicle would be our lifeline during our stay, as we would be miles from town. So I worried plenty about its partially unproven reliability 
while heading out. Mount Rushmore itself revealed a rather boring destination. Just an enormous mountain with presidents carved on the face. Surely a monument of considerable human achievement with a significant tribute, yet something of that scale could have been produced on a hilltop made of artificial resources on the outskirts of our fine nation's capital. Ruining a majestic rock face seemed excessively arbitrary. The sightseers were the genuine attraction. Many of them were foreigners that knew only what the signs, gift shops, and word of mouth had told them about the phenomenon. Once enough foreigners with broken English discussed the significance amongst their circles, we decided they would need proper guidance. Let's be real. Would Americans know the presidents or leaders of some other country? Probably not. Though we had the knowledge to give them, it was not the information a history teacher would approve of. No attentive history student would either. The accuracy of the monument's identities may have been altered to other famous figures whom I do not recall. Let's just say it was Robert De Niro, Martin Short, Arsenio Hall, and Archie Wankel. I am sure they appreciated our warm American hospitality. As a group of people were passing us, I said to Brad in a loud argumentative manner, If that's not Gorbachev, then why is it called Mount Russian? Calms 9-13-99 Funny guy. It is worth explaining that Andy possessed the talent of an experienced Nashville drummer with USO tour experience and understood how to play to a crowd. I learned this in 1995 when we visited the Albuquerque Zoo admiring the flamingos. He crept up next to a person holding a camcorder and abruptly started shrieking like a dying crow or worse. When everyone glanced at him in horror, he replied, It's their mating call, in a manner that downplayed the absurdity of what he had just done. He managed a tone that lived up to his last name. It's comforting knowing that footage from the mid-90s may remain as someone's shocking climax of their Albuquerque Zoo visit. We rolled on to the next leg of our trip, beautiful Bozeman, Montana. We crossed the borders of Montana, the state that would be home indefinitely. This time around, we quickly learned that there were max speed limits again. Apparently, the federal government threatened to withhold funding if the state did not restore daytime speed limits. What a disappointment. We hung out briefly with my friend Vice, whom I had come out to Montana with on the previous occasion. He attended Montana State University, proof that it is always a good idea to mimic a shower before visiting a school you might end up enrolling in. We visited some distant relatives from my Uncle Dave's side. His niece lived there, and she had a lot of property where she cared for horses and trained others to ride. I had never ridden a horse freely, and she taught us a few essentials. The experience stirred me by both the grace of the horse I rode, but also the proficiency of her horsemanship. We stayed the night there with her husband and mom. The husband did not say much to us, nor did he seem very pleased we were there. But we didn't care much. Perhaps he was just disinterested. We discussed what winters were like, and from the sounds of it, we were in for buckets of snow upcoming. 
I absorbed as much advice as she could give, checked my email one last time, and drove toward the ultimate destination circled on the map the next day. On September 8, 1999, we arrived at the unpaved driveway to the cabin. It was actually happening, and I could not believe the excitement. With so many past road adventures, an alarming majority of them featured catastrophe, the car handled the trip void of failure. The logistical plan to get us there executed absent of any flaws that came to mind. Those jagged grooves on the keys altered the pins of the cabin's front door lock successfully, allowing unbarred entry. Everything had all gone so smoothly. We decided on rooms, which were partitioned off with a blanket covering the entrances, and unpacked a bit. The task at hand was so overpowering. We knew that we had to get ourselves in a place fit for winter with the potential of being snowed in for weeks at a time. Having now seen the area and stepped foot inside the cabin, such planning became clearer. We were working with an empty mat on the easel.